Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. So, this morning, as you know, uh, we finished up our journey, our book study of Colossians last week. And so now we're going to be moving forward um, in a new direction with, um, you know, with what we're preaching through. Uh, we, I've got a new series that I'm working on uh, that we'll, we'll start in a couple of weeks. Uh, but for now, there's a couple of, uh, I think, topical things that we need to uh, need to address and some things that um, w- are going on in our world today that we um, should probably be um, talking about to some extent. Um, and so this morning, uh, what we're gonna, going to do is we're going to look at the book of James. So uh, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to James chapter 1. And uh, as you turn there, uh, we're not going to read just yet. But as you turn to James chapter 1, um, I want you to know we have en- I have entitled this today's sermon, uh, Preposterous Joy. Now, for those of you who uh, are following along on the YouVersion uh, Bible app on the event, you already have seen that. Uh, but today's title is Preposterous Joy, and that's going to be from James chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. While you're turning there in the Bible... Uh, Let me just give a bit of a brief introduction of where we're going this morning. Um, I I, I don't have to tell you uh, about all of the stuff that's going on in our world today. I mean, coronavirus, uh, rising case numbers, uh, rising hospitalization rates, um, rising death rates even in some cases, um, the threat of another shutdown, uh, mask orders, and that's not even to consider all the all of the other things that are going on in this world uh, in our country, namely, uh, you know, civil unrest, protests, riots. Um, tensions are high in our country right now. That's not even to consider your own life. What's going on in your life? I know some people have been personally affected by what's going on today with either the virus or the economies just somehow affected um, in one way or another by what's going on today. So the question is, how do we as Christians need to think about this? More specifically, what does our attitude need to be regarding all of the trouble or any sort of trouble that comes our way, that comes knocking on our door. You know, they say opportunity knocks, but sometimes trouble knocks. Sometimes trials knock. There are plenty of self-help books out there geared towards teaching people how to get rid of pain or sorrow or anguish or suffering. And we are certainly always quick to look for the way out of pain, right? We, we don't want to be in pain. We don't want to feel pain. We don't want to deal with things. We don't want to go through trials. Uh, we, we try to escape our discomfort. But does God have something for us in the midst 
of the trial or the tribulation or the trauma? It's a good question. It's an important question that we need to all ask and understand. So let's see what the scripture says about it. I hope you're there by now. It's James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we gather around our screens this morning, as we gather around your word this morning, Lord, I ask that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Help us to understand, Lord. Help us not to leave with just an intellectual understanding of this passage, but help us to leave with a heartfelt deep spiritual understanding of this passage, Lord. I pray that you help me to preach accurately and effectively with grace and love, and I pray that it be received, uh, the word of, uh, the seed of your word be received on fertile soil to bear much fruit for your glory, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would be, uh, understand how to be encouraged through this passage, Lord. Uh, that we would understand how counterintuitive and countercultural our faith is, Lord. Help us not to be doers or hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So James, James chapter 1. Who is James? Uh, so, you know, the first thing that we need to do is gain a bit of an understanding of what who James is talking to, and what James is talking about. That way we can learn how it applies to us today in our context. Uh, so let's just break down our text. Now, the first thing that we notice in James chapter 1, verse 1, is that it's written by James. Now, who is James? He opens up saying, James. So let's stop there. Who is James? Uh, many of you uh, probably already know, but James was the half-brother of Jesus. Um, half-brother because Jesus was, um, he was born of the Holy Spirit uh, through the womb of Mary. Uh, but they grew up in the same household together. Uh, so James was the half-brother of Jesus. And this is, uh, he was also an apostle and a very prominent early church leader. Uh, so he was actually very well known in the area at that time. And so when they sat down to read this epistle, they would understand who James is, right? They would understand, oh, this is that James. This is, this is the James, right? Uh, so he was very well known. He was a prominent church leader. Uh, and then he introduces himself as a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this might seem to you as just like a very common opening, and indeed, it's it's pretty common. Um, at least the you know the, the general idea of what James is is writing out there. Um, it is 
fairly common. However, what is important to note about this is that, first of all, James actually originally did not even believe in Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Can you imagine what that was like? That Jesus' own brothers that grew up with him, you know, maybe they shared a bed, uh, maybe they played games together or whatever, and they were looking at him like, I don't, I don't really know if you are who you say you are because we grew up together. James didn't believe in him, yet something has happened, has changed in the heart of James um, that has caused him now to believe and, and he now will proudly introduce himself as a servant, a doulos. That word is doulos. Remember, we've talked about this, that that actually means slave. And today's, in today's understanding of that word, it has a very negative connotation. But at this time, it would have actually been James saying, I belong to Jesus. Jesus owns me. I am his. I am, I totally, 100% completely belong to Christ. He is my master. And this would have actually been a mark of honor at that time. So something happened in the life of James. And we know Paul writes, I believe, in 1 Corinthians that, that Christ, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to James. Um, so maybe that was his moment of conversion. We don't have it written out for us in Scripture. But we do know that somewhere along the lines, the life of James has been changed. And his heart has been regenerated. And he is now a prominent church leader. And he's now proud to be associated as a slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ. Today, you know, we, we don't really like to call ourselves servants or, and certainly not slaves. It is so demeaning to us. But do you ever identify this way? You know, that I am a servant of Jesus. I, I'm a slave. I'm a doulos of Jesus. I belong to him. He is my master. I am his. Is this the way that you and I identify ourselves? Do we think of ourselves this way? Let's, let us really examine ourselves in that this morning. Because really, what a mark of honor that is, that I belong to the Most High God. I belong to the Lord God Almighty. I am His. There's nothing demeaning about that. Now, let's consider the, the audience that James is writing to. He says, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now, there are two understandings of, of what James is saying here. And so it is, it's important that we understand this because we, it, it will affect how we understand the rest of, of what James writes and certainly the rest of our verses. You would read that and your first inclination would be the 12 tribes, what he means, the Israelites, right? Uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, but actually, most likely who he was writing to is just Christians who were uh, scattered abroad. So the dispersion just means those who are dispersed. So there wasn't a place 
called dispersion. You couldn't go to dispersion, you know, dispersion Jerusalem or dispersion Egypt. It wasn't a city. It's not a place that you find on MapQuest. Uh, the dispersion just meant it was more of an event that, that they have been dispersed throughout the lands. Um, to help us get some understanding of that, Acts eleven nineteen, it says, Now those who were scattered, no, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So this was the dispersion in Peter, uh, the first book of Peter, chapter 1. He, his audience is to the elect exiles in the dispersion. What he's saying is just Christians, the Christians who have been scattered abroad because of the persecution that was taking place early on. You know, Jesus was hated and then his disciples and apostles after that were hated as well. And so to avoid persecution, they were dispersed throughout the land, as it said in, in Acts, throughout Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch and, and probably more places than that. They, they've just been dispersed. So this is who James is most likely writing to, is just Christians who have been dispersed throughout the land. In a real way, we are all in the dispersion. You see, as a Christian, our citizenship is in heaven. We are not of this world. We live here, yes, but Scripture calls us sojourners, that we are just passing through this earth. So really, we're all in the dispersion. Those of us who are Christians, we are in the dispersion because we've been scattered abroad because our home is in heaven. Therefore, by just by the nature of what the dispersion is, you know, this, this epistle is written to Christians, to all of us, those of us who have our citizenship in heaven. Now, the purpose of this book is that James was writing to address several different issues. Remember, he was a prominent church leader. So he's writing about a lot of different things that are going on in that time. Uh, there, there wasn't just one particular issue. Remember in Colossians, the big issue at hand was that there was false teaching creeping in. Well, James is, is writing about everything that's going on. There's a whole lot of different stuff. And if you were to read through James, you would begin to see that there's just issue after issue that James just in rapid succession, just moves from thing to thing to thing because there was a lot going on and he had a lot to deal with. Now, that makes it really important how he starts. Then it's, it's very significant then what James takes as his first issue. It, it wasn't the deity of Christ. It, it wasn't false teaching. It, it wasn't any of those things. The first issue that James tackles, that he addresses, is joy in the midst of trials. Joy in the midst of trials. I told you I've called this sermon uh, preposterous joy because who can be joyful in the midst of a trial, yet we're met right away from the pen of James 
to count it all joy, my brothers, when you face or you meet trials of various kinds. I've spoken before of imperative verbs. And just as a reminder, all it means that is that they usually indicate some sort of command or some sort of exhortation that's being given. In so many of Paul's writings, you won't find a command, an imperative, until a, a chapter or two into his writing because he does a long greeting, he writes out some teaching, and then he turns to say, okay, now this is what you do. But James doesn't even have a long introduction. He just says, hi, I'm James. I'm writing to you. Count it all joy. He just gets right down to business and count it all joy. This is actually in the imperative. This is a command. This is an exhortation that James is writing at the beginning of verse 2. All that to say that what he's talking about is extremely important. And it's not a suggestion. He's not laying out a, man, you know, if you can, if you can figure out how, or it would be great if you did. No, what James is lining out is an exhortation. It is an imperative. It is a command of how we must live as we are in the dispersion. Just so you can have this in the back of your head. In the book of Colossians, if you'll remember, Brandon preached his first sermon in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6, uh, 6 and 7, I believe it was. That was the first time a command had been issued in the book of Colossians. So that's just as a form of reference for you. So let's read this again. Let's read verse 2 again. Get your Bible and look at it. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Another way we could say this is, my brothers, when trials come into your life unexpectedly, see it as an opportunity for great joy. How counterintuitive is this? How how bizarre is this statement? Who, who in the world can live this way? Count it all joy when you face trials? What do you mean, James? You mean to be joyful whenever I get laid off unexpectedly? You mean for, for the people at this time? You mean to count it all joy when my family is ripped apart because of persecution? You, you want me to count that joy? You want me to smile through this, James? What is wrong with you, James? Are you, are you sick in the head? Who can possibly find an opportunity to, to laugh through trials? Be joyful? Be happy that everyone at work mocks me and reviles me for my faith? What, what do you mean, James? Now, this is not an exhortation to be joyful for suffering but rather an exhortation for the proper perspective of the purpose of suffering. I'll say that again. This is not an exhortation to be joyful for suffering, 
rather an exhortation for the proper perspective of the purpose of suffering. In other words, we're not told, told to be joyful because of pain and heartache. Not to be joyful that your heart is breaking. Not to be joyful that, that, that things are going wrong. But to be joyful because of what it produces in you. James is also not suggesting some sort of utopian world where everything goes right for the Christian. And that's why they should be joyful. He doesn't say, count it all joy, my brothers, when Christ blesses you with a car. Count it all joy, my brothers, when, when you get another clean bill of health from the doctor. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you get that promotion at work. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you get a raise. No, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's instructing his audience of the right perspective to have when trials come our way. When you meet trials. Trials will come. And notice how he says it. In my translation, he says of various kinds, all different types of trials. That means big trials, and that means little trials. That means minor annoyances and major grievances and everything in between. All types of trials. Consider it joy because they will come. It's a guarantee. You will see this. John 16, you know this verse. Jesus is speaking. In the world, you will have tribulation. It's going to happen. Don't be surprised. In fact, that's actually what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Troubles are nothing new to the human experience. It is a reality of the broken world we live in. Sin has affected every aspect of life, even creation. And as such, we can be sure that we will suffer while we are here. We will go through trials. Right now, all of us as a people are going through this crazy pandemic this coronavirus situation and civil unrest, these are all, this is a, 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 a worldwide, a, a, an all unifying trouble that we are all going through right now. Plus, there's no telling what you personally are going through right now. All of us have experienced difficulties, all of us experience trials. So the aim of our life should not be, the, the desire of our heart should not be, you know, I just want to have a good life. I just want to, uh, you know, just, I just want to make it through. I just want to relax and be comfortable. That shouldn't be the aim of the Christian, but instead that we would have the heart to say, Lord, help me to be willing and ready to receive whatever you send my way. Whatever you send my way, help me to count it all joy no matter what I face. This is even alluding, uh, alluded to in what James writes, that when you meet troubles, 
Now, what's what he's saying here with meat is it, it, the word is actually meaning to come across a hazardous, hazardous or negative situation by accident. You know, everything was fine. I, I don't know what happened. I didn't even feel sick. I just passed out one day, and now I find out, found, found out I have brain cancer. That's what happened. I've spoken to you of, of Matt Chandler, the pastor from the village church. Everything was fine. There were no signs of a cancer residing in his brain. He just randomly passed out one, one day. That is, that is what James is speaking of here. That You didn't see it coming. It blindsided you. Everything was going fine. There wasn't a cloud in the sky and all of a sudden a mighty rushing wind came in and rain started to pour. This is the type of thing that James is speaking of. And you know, so often when we, when these things happen, our, our mentality and our attitude is so negative. I can't believe this is happening to me. God, are you even listening to my prayers? Well, I guess I must have done something wrong to God because of what I'm going through right now. Or, or, or we just have, see it as an opportunity for a pity party. Well, poor me, you know, poor, I, never, I never get the promotion. I, I, I never get treated right. I never this, I, I, I never that. And we have this negative attitude towards it. But what's James's, what is James saying? Count it all joy. When you face trials, when those things come up out of nowhere that you weren't expecting, count it all joy. When you show up to work and they still don't appreciate you again for the 900th day in a row, count it all joy. My brothers, I, I know what you're thinking. Matt, who can live that way? That's not the real world. It's certainly not the world that we live in. Before the Christian, this is to be our real world. That we do live this way. That we see this in the Bible. And we say, I don't live this way. I need to line myself up with what this says. And then we fall to our knees in prayer, asking God to make this a reality in our lives. None of us are perfect, friends. We, we all get frustrated. We all get sad. We all get heartbroken. This isn't a prescription to avoid your emotions. That's not what's being said here. But it is to change our perspective about the purpose of the suffering that we are falling into. He's prescribing our, our change of perspective. We change our perspective on our pain because we understand the process that we must go through to reach perfection. And we know that we won't reach perfection here in this lifetime. But this is a process, an ongoing process of sanctification through the rest of our lives. Now, let's look at verse 3. Let's read it again. Verse 3. Four you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
Now we can see the unfolding of the reason why it is that we should consider an opportunity for great joy when we encounter trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith, your faith must be tested. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Some of your translations say that, and that's what he means by steadfastness, is endurance, a faith that endures. So we're going to gather three reasons to be joyful when we face trials. And number one is that tested faith produces enduring faith. A tested faith produces an enduring faith. Romans 5.3 furthers this point by saying, our suffering produces endurance. It produces endurance. It is endurance in the faith that we all need. In an age where celebrity Christians are supposedly falling away from the faith, and publicly so, how badly we need a faith that endures. In a day of just absolute uncertainty, day after day after day, how badly we need a faith that endures. Not one that grows stagnant. Not one that we put on the shelf and I'll get back to God when everything's going right again. Not one that, that, that we just turn a blind eye to, but a faith that endures. A faith that keeps us through the storm. And know this, that it's not your faith itself that produces the endurance. It's the testing of your faith. Your faith isn't a magic wand. It's not a supernatural power that you have as though you were a superhero. Your faith is just the tie that binds you to the Lord. And it has to be tested to produce endurance. We can believe all of our life. We can live to be 99 years old. But if our faith fails us on the day that we die, church, we have believed in vain. Thus, to have our faith tested, that it may produce endurance within us, is of incredible value. There's a great theologian who passed on from this life to the next on Friday. His name is J.I. Packer. He has an incredible book called Knowing God, and I would encourage you to go pick it up. But this is a man who lived to 93 years old, and his faith endured to the end. You see, there's plenty of celebrity preachers and teachers who, who rise up, and they're just like a flare. They're just a spark, and they sizzle out once their popularity dies down. But to be a Christian whose faith endures till the end, that no matter what I go through, no matter what I face, no matter what fiery trials await me, that I endure through it all. Oh, church, that we would be people like this to endure through all, every manner of trial and tribulation. Now, there is another goal in the testing of our faith. It is testing the genuineness of our faith. 
Our faith must be tested in the forge of suffering that it may prove its genuineness. It must be tested by fire to burn away impurities. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, to have a faith that endures is to have a genuine faith. It's easy to praise and worship and be joyful when everything's going right, when everybody's gathered in the building, right? When we're all singing and everybody's happy and we just won a big victory. It's easy to celebrate after the Super Bowl. It's, it, it's easy to celebrate after a win. But can you see great loss as an opportunity to have your faith tested so that you can come through the fire being proven to be genuine? Can you, like Job, fall to the ground under the weight of grief and instead of cursing God, say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Blessed be his name forever. You see, Job's wife had a different mindset. She was ready to curse God and die. But not Job. Job's faith in the Lord was genuine, and the fiery furnace of affliction proved that his faith was genuine. Thus, we find our second cause for joy when faced with trials is that enduring faith proves genuine faith. It's easy to believe when all is well. It's easy to be joyful when the sun is shining. But will your faith hold fast in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials of various sizes and kinds and types? Will you turn your back and run? Or will you see the trial as an opportunity for great joy? You see, in, in Psalm chapter 1, it speaks of this man who is blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is this man because he's like a tree planted by the river of water who brings forth his fruit in its season. But the wicked, the wicked are not so. They blow away in the wind like chaff. The wind comes and sweeps them away. But the righteous, the one who has the genuine faith in Christ is like a tree planted by the rivers of waters. That same wind blows and the, the, tr the limbs may rustle, leaves might get blown off, but it brings forth its fruit in its season. But the wicked, the wicked are not so. They blow away. And this we see all too often in the midst of trials. It's that people lose faith. People lose heart. And what that does is that fiery trial has proven that their faith was never genuine. Beloved, I hope that that would not be said of you. 
that through that fiery trial, you would come out on the end, shining brilliantly with impurities burned away, being proven as a genuine child of God. See, for the Christian, it is a, a true joy to know that your faith in Christ is not in vain, that you're not fooling yourself by calling yourself a Christian. Through, though the suffering would be tremendous, though the heart shatter in a billion pieces, to come out on the other end knowing you are a child of God, a true child of God is a cause for great joy. Verse 4. Let's read verse 4 again. He says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As you walk through suffering, as you consider trials an opportunity for joy, as you endure through it all, this has yet another important purpose. It matures you. That's what it says, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What, what that's speaking of is, is that perfection is speaking of completeness, of maturity. And this is another imperative, by the way, is to let steadfastness work in you, have its completion in you. The point is not to endure for the sake of enduring, just so you can say you did. Endurance produces something more within you, something deeper. As you endure, as you are tested, impurities are burned away. Your faith and trust in God are strengthened and your love for him is deepened. You mature in the Lord and you are rewarded by the Lord. Look with me down at verse 12. Say from the same chapter, verse, uh, or chapter 1, verse 12. He said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You see, enduring proves that you love God. Enduring is rewarded by God. And, and there's a similar promise in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. He says, and this is Jesus speaking, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear it. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. There's that word again, tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You see, endurance is synonymous with faithfulness. To endure is to be faithful. To be faithful through the, uh, through the suffering is to prove a genuine faith that you are a real Christian. You're not just a person who goes to church and sits in a seat. You're not just a person who has a, a cool bumper sticker on your car. You're not just a person who listens to Caleb. You're not just a person who doesn't cuss. But you're a genuine child of God who has been reborn and regenerated by the mighty working power of the Holy Spirit. Let me take this moment to ask you, has that happened for you? Do you have a faith at all? Do you have a faith 
that can even be tested. Have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Or are you just going through life, let me tell you, for the wicked, for the unbelieving, for those not in Christ? What hope is there in the midst of suffering? And oftentimes we bring those things upon ourselves. But you see, there is a, a way to be made right with God and forgiven of our sins and stand clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And it is by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus. Dear friends, if you have never done that today, do that today. Believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, our endurance leads us to maturation, which leads us to perfection. But will we see perfection this side of glory? Certainly not. Yet when we enter glory, we will be perfect, for we shall see him as he is. And on that day, if you have endured, if your faith is proven genuine, you will receive the crown of life. So why should you consider suffering an opportunity for great joy? Because genuine, enduring faith is rewarded with the crown of life. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Set your mind on things Above, when you face trials of every sort, set your mind on Jesus. We can rejoice because our inner self is being renewed day by day as we endure through various trials. Our troubles are both light and momentary, yet by contrast they produce for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So don't look to what you can see, because what you can see is fading away. It is transient. It is perishing. Even the pain that you experience is fading away. It is transient. It is perishing. But what you cannot see is eternal. What you cannot see is what it is doing within you. What you cannot see is the incredible work you're enduring through various trials is producing inside of you. What you cannot see is the life that is to come and the eternal weight of glory that awaits you there. What you cannot see is more valuable than what you can see. So endure, trust, have faith, hold fast. Friends, this world is ravaged by sin. And because of that, horrible, terrible things happen that cause us great pain. Let us not, though, despise the moment that suffering enters our life, but instead 
See it as an opportunity for great joy. So why should we rejoice when we're faced with trials? Because tested faith produces an enduring faith. And an enduring faith proves a genuine faith. And a genuine enduring faith is rewarded with the crown of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your promises. We thank you that you've made a way for us to endure through all things. And Lord, I know that this is just so seemingly impossible to live out. But help us not to look to the things that are seen. Because within us, we will not find the strength. But within you, we find strength inexhaustible. So Lord, I pray that you help us to turn to you. I pray that you help us to fix our gaze upon you, to set our minds on heavenly things, that we would be so not of this world, that it doesn't matter what we go through, Lord, that we would fix our hope in Christ. Be with us, Lord, and lead us. Help us to make this a reality in our lives, Lord. I pray that you be with us and lead us and guide us. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy to you all.